Welcome to the St. Patrick Catholic Community Podcast in Scottsdale, Arizona. We are Christian Disciples in Mission. Thank you, uh, John, for your welcome, and to all of you for uh, coming out on this uh, Monday night in such, uh, in such numbers. Um, a sign of how alive this parish is, but also about our thirst for, trying, for some understanding about what's happening in the church and how we can be a part of the change, the authentic and lasting reform that we seek. So we're all familiar with um, the Pieta, Michelangelo's masterpiece. It's now on the screens around you. So just gaze on that for a second. It sits at the back of St. Peter's Basilica, just to the right inside the door, the main doors. That familiar image of Mary holding her son. Now, Michelangelo did not come up with the idea of the Pieta. It's, an, it's a medieval devotion that had different forms. This is the best known and probably the most eloquent expression of the, the Pieta. Mary holding the body of her son taken down from the cross. And as you gaze upon it, you might be drawn, as most people are, to the to the image of Mary, because we get her full feature, her face. And we can probably relate to her suffering, her broke her loss. We've all been there. We know that grief, we know that loss. But what I would like for us to focus on tonight is the broken body of Jesus, her son, whom she holds. We focus on the one who is held because the body of Christ, the church, is broken. And we are called, each of us in our own way, to assume the role of Mary, to hold the body of Christ at this moment. And what does this actually mean, to hold the body of Christ? We know that in St. Paul's letters, we hear of the image of the church as the body of Christ, as the body of Christ is the living members of the early church that Paul would write to. We would say that enlivened by the Spirit, the church is Christ's presence in the world after the resurrection. When we are all members of the body. And so by saying that we must hold on to the body of Christ who is the church, I mean that we are called to care for, the, care for the wounds of God's people at this moment. As members of the body of Christ, we are called to hold on to, to care for the wounds of God's people. Now, admittedly, when I use the words body of Christ, church, God's people, they, they can sound very abstract, and it makes it easy for us to say, sure, I can do that. I can care for the body of Christ. It's easy to love humanity generally, isn't it? It's much harder to love this or that person. That's tougher. So to hold the body of Christ, the church, is to hold this person, this victim of abuse, this perpetrator of abuse, this disgusted Catholic, this discouraged priest or bishop, this self-protective bishop. And that's where it gets very hard for you and I. There are lots of things that we can do, and I will get to that eventually. But what we need to do first is much more important 
in order to assure that we do achieve the lasting reform and authentic reform that we all want, the reconciliation, or maybe best put, the healing that we seek. Before action plans, we need some spiritual reform or repositioning, reimagining. We need to change our vision. We need to look deeply enough to see the wounds that we do not first see. We need to summon the courage to hold the body while hanging on to the hope that is hidden in the Pietà. Let me first focus on the need to behold the broken body of Christ, to see this person, that person deeply in all their beauty and their brokenness, to hold them concretely. And I want to refer to my homily from the weekend. I talked to you about my time in India as a young Jesuit, how transformative it was for me. I shared with you my experience in a, in a leprosy hospital. But before I went there, I spent some time in Calcutta, and there I visited Mother Teresa's home for the dying, Caligat. It was the first home for the dying that she and the Missionaries of Charities founded. And literally, it is a home for the dying. People are brought there off the streets, elderly, infirm, those who are dying, in order to die with some comforts, with some dignity. And I remember seeing this image as I worked there. And again, it was just this gigantic concrete edifice, very simple, very clean. All these uh, cots sort of lined up. There had to have been, you know, rows of like 20 or 25. You know, there may have been 100 cots in there or something. And the nuns and the volunteers went about their work. A lot of people resting and simple caring for these people's bodily needs. Well, I remember at one point these volunteers brought from the front door this man who was clearly, clearly in great suffering. His body was broken, he was bruised, he was clearly dying. And they whisked him, this, these, three, these three or four people carried him, and he was just in some garment, simple garment, and they brought him to the back of this basic dormitory. And there was this, um, it was the washing area, and it was basically this concrete slab that went waist high, and they laid the body on the concrete slab. And gently and carefully, the nuns and the volunteers just took off the man's clothes and just bathed him. And you could actually see his face, some comfort, feeling the water over his body. And I just remember how beautifully those volunteers and those missionaries of charity just gently and gracefully and carefully cared and washed that man. It was very intimate. I mean, they were washing all the man. And they didn't care. They looked at the peace that brought him. And as I watched this amazing sort of symphony of grace going on before me, I noticed that written above this concrete slab, this washing station, were... were these words in English, this is the body of Christ. So when the volunteers addressed the suffering of this man or the discomfort of washing him so intimately, no doubt they looked at that and said, no, this is the body of Christ. I can do this. We can do this. 
He deserves it. For me, that experience helped me to see beyond what might be hard to look at, the physical hurts and wounds that people carry, to see Christ in the other. This practice of seeing deeply, which I spoke about in my homily, is a pathway to the divine. And it summons us as disciples if we care to look that way. Remember the line from Hopkins in my homily, Christ playing in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and eyes not his, to the Father in the features of men's faces. You see, you and I tend to divorce easily the divine and the human, the sacred and the secular, Sunday and Friday. We compartmentalize our lives, but the teaching of the incarnation God becoming one of us is that Jesus' humanity, in Jesus' humanity, God blessed humanity irrevocably. And in the resurrection and ascension, humanity was brought up into the very life of God. Think about that. Jesus did not just jettison his human body or human suit on Calvary. And off he went spiritually to heaven. No, he was brought up body and spirit into the very life of God. Our humanity is caught up into the risen life. Our humanity is caught up into the life of God. That's why humanity, our brokenness, our beauty is the pathway to to the divine. That's why you and I are called to embrace our humanity and that of others and all of its complexity. And we are called to embrace the church, the body of Christ in the same way. However hard it could be, what is human is the pathway to the divine. It's not always pretty. Look at the Pieta again. An oversized and youthful looking Mary is cradling the man Jesus as a child. The marble here does not indicate the suffering, the brokenness that other Medieval images of the Pieta indicate where you will see blood and and bruised and the marks of the crucifixion so clear. But regardless in whatever version of the Pieta you prefer, look how close Mary is. She is close, as close as you can get, holding her son, his lifeless body. She got close. She stood by the cross close. She held the body of her son close. You see, Christianity is a religion of closeness, a proximity. We don't follow an idea or a principle. We follow a person, and people get close to each other if they love each other, don't they? We heard in the first reading on Sunday that God came close to Moses in the burning bush. And that's a swell way to get someone's attention. But you can't really hug a bush. So God said, oh, there must be a better way. So God came to us in the person of Jesus, another human being, which the Second Vatican Council says so beautifully, the one who walked with human feet and worked with human hands and with a human heart loved. So if we are disciples of Christ who got close, we have to get close to other people. Christianity is about contact, not primarily about concepts. Closeness is the the only way where hearts can be 
converted and lives can be changed. So practically then, whom shall we hold? Gaze on the Pieta again. Imagine you holding or beholding. Imagine the victim of abuse or his or her family. We know that the impact of sexual abuse lingers over a lifetime and its effects spill over. They often cannot be contained. It is true that some victims find healing, some sort of comfort in a relatively normal life, but most, most deal with a lot of fallout, whether it's addiction or the inability to form intimate relationships or just deep, deep pain or depression. There are skills that we can learn to help victims of abuse. Professionals can do that. But most of us are not equipped to care for the deep psychological needs of victims of abuse, but we can hold them in different ways, appropriate to who we are. We can create a welcoming space for them in our church, not avoiding their hurt when presented to us, as if to shield our eyes from the broken body. It's not to solve their pain or to explain it away or to say something, a pious platitude, but when presented with their pain is to acknowledge it quite simply. And for us, when appropriate, to name the harm done, not necessarily to that person, which may be a matter of privacy, but for us to say, as we just prayed, that the church has done great harm to people. And if they choose to speak out, we support them. We pray for them, as we did tonight. We hold the body. We hold the body of Catholics who are disaffected or disgusted with the church, who are fed up, angry, or sad. My guess is probably most of us at some point in the last 20 years be a pretty natural reaction to such violation of trust. And I have to admit to you, I've had my moments of great desolation, of great sadness. I lived in Boston in 2003 and 2004 and 2005 and 2006. I questioned whether I would want to be ordained in this church. I ultimately chose my ordination, but it was hard getting there. Thank God I had good people around me, patient, wise people. We have to find moments of accompanying people in their sadness or disgust or desperation. We gotta let them voice it. Don't explain it away. Don't give an answer. Give your witness of your own pain or suffering or your own desire to stay, to accompany, to walk with, to persevere. We need to share stories rather than share answers, I think. I know when I'm around, uh, in the last few months when it's gotten tough, um, I say mass at this really great, similar type of parish in San Francisco. Um, and ever I, whenever I say that, I, whenever I say mass there with those people and pray with them, I just feel better. I realize, okay, this is what the church is about. This will be the source of our healing. I can hang on. I have to hold my students, these young people at the school, Jesuits and laymen and women who are gonna give their life to this church and I need to hold them encourage them, 
help them discern whether they can serve in the church or not, or be a part of the church or not. I walk with them. I help people claim their voice, name it, claim it. If we don't name it and claim it, our anger or frustration or, or, or our deep desires for the church, it could be that our anger or hurt will fester and only lead to despair. We have to hold the perpetrators of abuse, not just the abuse of those, not just those who abuse someone physically, but the abuse of power by bishops and other leaders in the church. And it's just not bishops who have abused their power. There are others who ignored or explained away or abetted the behavior intentionally or not. We need to hold them too. They are part of the body of Christ. But how do we move from anger to forgiveness? This doesn't mean we forget. We do hold accountability. We do hold people accountable as a path to reconciliation. And we set up procedures of accountability and, and protection and safeguards. But in the end, I don't have a clear answer for you about how we forgive. I was recently at, uh, in the Jesuit community, when Jesuits are, um, uh, have credible claims against them and, and uh, have either admitted it or not, they are sent to a, a community, usually one community in each province, where they're on the safety plans and their, their, their movements are limited and they're observed and everything. And I remember uh, having lunch one day with someone who I knew was a serial abuser. And I sat there at lunch begging for the patients to stay at the table. An older Jesuit said, he is your brother. Remember, he doesn't stop being your Jesuit brother. But it was hard to sit at that table. Families have faced that. How do you forgive? No easy answer. That's why we pray for it every time we pray the Our Father, right? But forgiveness is one way of holding the body. Getting close in this way is, is hard. So that's why as we approach people who are victims in different ways or perpetrators of abuse, we get close to them, and when we do, we have to look deeply at them. We hold the victim, but if we look deeply enough, we should not see just their victimhood, but their authority, their resilience, as one equipped with tools of their own healing if we might accompany them in that healing. And in each other, we have to see not just, again, ourselves victims of the abuse of power, but we too have authority. And see within ourselves, which I'll talk about in a minute, the deep authority of our baptism and confirmation to heal the church. And you and I need to see differently the church not just as a group of bishops, but of us, the baptized priests of the church, all of us. So this is where I want to uh, talk about the urgency of lay leadership in the church. We hold the body of Christ, which is each other. We look deeply at the brokenness, and our compassion is surely incited. We wouldn't be here if we didn't want to do something and help people. But our discipleship our discipleship is summoned. Closeness breeds mission. 
Seeing differently will breed mission. Pope Francis has reminded us since he assumed office, gosh, six years ago, isn't that amazing? He, rem he has reminded us of the lessons of the Second Vatican Council. You may have heard of that. Vatican II, 1962 to 1965. But frankly, there are corners of the church that didn't speak a whole lot about it for a while or didn't emphasize as much as, as at least this pope has and others, but most recently this pope. In too many quarters of the church, the great lessons of the Second Vatican Council were ignored or overlooked or, or explained in a way that did mental calisthenics. In the document Lumen Gentium of the Second Vatican Council, the church uh, fathers, and they were all fathers, they, they described what is the, they answered the question, what is the church? The first thing they said, you know what they said? Church is mystery. And they talked about the body of Christ. A whole chapter on that. Chapter two, what did they talk about? Church is the people of God on a pilgrim way. Chapter three, they finally got to church's hierarchy. When I think in popular imagination, maybe most of our imaginations, even if you were formed after Vatican II, when we said church often equals hierarchy, that is not the lesson of the Second Vatican Council. We have focused on hierarchy, the last definition, which is an important part of who we are. The hierarchy gives us unity. The hierarchy is a means to unity. It's a, it's a way of holding ourselves together. It's a way of lasting for 2,000 years. We need leadership with authority, but that authority must be exercised not as an exertion of power, but of God-given authority and trust placed in the people of, by the people of God. Before there was hierarchy, there was St. Paul talking about the body of Christ. Before there was hierarchy, there was images in both the Old and the New Testaments of the people of God as making up the community of believers. There is slight mention of hierarchy in the New Testament. Hierarchy holds the church together. Thank God. The offices of the church unite us. Thank God. The offices of the church serve us. We hope. But sometimes we just have forgotten that both ancient and modern lesson. And I think we've suffered because of it. Vatican II also reminded us that in our baptism, we are each anointed as Christ was. His offices, the office, the authority of Christ, priest, prophet, and king. All of us, when we were anointed in our baptism, we were, all of us were anointed a priest, priestess, prophet, prophetess, king, queen. Why a priest? We are all anointed as a priest does to make the world a more holy place by our words and actions. We can all do that. Before I was a priest, I was baptized. 
I was anointed a priest in 1966. I was ordained in 2006. But I was anointed a priest first in my baptism like everyone else was. I was anointed, you were anointed a prophet to speak the truth with love, to proclaim the faith by word and deed. You and I were anointed king, but not king with scepter and chair, but king as servant king. The, 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 power, the power of that kingship of Christ was not in weapons, but in a wash, basin, and towel that he washed the disciples' feet with. Priest, prophet, and king, all of us. Any function in the church, whether you're ordained or married, clergy or lay, you and I are priest, prophet, and king. Never, we never can lose that. That is our calling card. Hold on to it. Especially when people try to take that away or explain it away. And following from this is another very important idea that Pope Francis has talked about clearly and in different ways. In his, in his most official writings, he has raised the notion discussed in Vatican II, but clearly forgotten after. The census fideum, or the census fide, the sense of the faith. No pope has talked more about it since Vatican II than Pope Francis. And what does it mean? The sense of the faithful? It means simply this, that every believer, everyone, by his or her baptism, has an intuition about our faith that must be shared. An intuition about how we ought to live our faith. And so we have to hold in balance our obeying this sense of the faithful and our obeying church authority. Both go together in balance, in creative tension. We cannot forget one without the other. We have to claim it. So, fellow priests, prophets, kings, and queens, it's time for us to exercise our office because the body of Christ is broken and the church needs us. Listen to what Lumen Gentium, that document from Vatican II, says. Pretty clear. The lady should openly reveal to clergy and bishops their needs and desires with that freedom and confidence which is fitting for children of God and brothers and sisters in Christ. The lady are permitted and sometimes even obliged to express their opinion on those things which concern the good of the church. Let it always be done in truth, in courage and in prudence, with reverence and charity towards those who by reason of their sacred office represent the person of Christ. No one is off the hook. No more pray and obey. Pray, speak, and obey. Or pray, speak, discern, and obey. So what can we do? Let me get very practical here. Um, and I've already mentioned some ways, very practically. The first thing is to claim your voice as Christians, as mothers, as fathers of men and women, as an immigrant, as a gay or lesbian person, as a young person or old person, claim your Christian identity in who you are. Speak up in the right way, again, using prudence, courage, reverence, and charity. Lots to discern. 
God is indeed found in the authority of the church exercised by the clergy and bishops, yes. But it is also found in our authority that we exercise as baptized Christians and as a matter of conscience. Claim that authority. Discern it. But there are also some structural and organizational changes that we can consider or rightfully demand of those who serve us as pastoral leaders. And again, I'm not just talking about ordained people. It could be any pastoral leader. You have a lot of them at this beautiful parish. And here I rely on a wonderful resource that was just published by the Leadership Roundtable on Church Management. It's this organization that was developed um, after the, the sexual abuse scandal of the early 2000s. They've done some incredible work. And their idea was, let's restructure church management because the church was failing miserably and how it was re, uh, allowed the church, the sexual abuse crisis, and then responded to it. So they have very practical advice. And they just published a new report, the Leadership Roundtable, Heal the Body of Christ. It was, follows a, a great discernment among um, Catholics, uh, bishops, priests, theologians, laymen and women of different kinds, Heal the Body of Christ from the Leadership Roundtable. It's an amazing document. Lots of good stuff in there. I just want to hit a, a couple of highlights which might be helpful to you as a church community. The document calls not simply for collaboration, but co-responsibility. That is for lay people to have more authority in parish structures. So I make, I, I can't, I, I say nothing about this parish. I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of how you operate, but so let me just speak generally. Um, parish councils, diocesan boards, personnel review boards. They're arguing for co-responsibility, not just collaboration, which can sometimes, not always, be reduced to, oh, we listen to you, but then don't necessarily do anything with what they hear. Or have a seat at the table, but it's not really a meaningful seat. Real collaboration, real co-responsibility means that though everyone at the table has some authority, Again, in parish councils, for instance, diocesan boards. Pope Francis has called for the greater use of synods, which are this wonderful gatherings, local gatherings in the early church of bishops and other ecclesiastical authorities. Usually, I mean, in the, in the first centuries of the church, the church was not as centralized as it is now. And it was run every, you know, there was a synod in Alexandria and a synod in Antioch, and there was a synod in Rome and a synod in Constantinople, right? They had these local gatherings, councils of the local church, and they made decisions that eventually the Bishop of Rome took authority as a, as a symbol of unity in the church, particularly as it got bigger and bigger and bigger. But what happened over the next thousand years is we lost the sense of local control, and Pope Benedict and Pope Francis have been really intentional about trying to decentralize the authority of Rome so as to empower and raise up local churches. And one very concrete mechanism is a synod, and some bishops have recently used the synod as a way to get input and collaboration with people on the ground. I'm not sure whether this is offered in, in Phoenix or not, but it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a structure in the church which this pope has approved, and is, if there's any great structural transformation that Francis will be known for, it is the synod, the local or diocesan synod. But the bishop has to sort of ferment that. 
So co-responsibility, let me offer another example for you. Co-responsibility very practically offers, also means that if you see a priest or pastoral leader in crisis, you need to do something. If you see that they're way overworked or more isolated or drinking too much or apparently really lonely, do something. Because whenever, that, whenever any person is in that type of shape, you know, it just, it's not healthy for a church community. We got to be accountable to each other in that way. And I say that not just for church leaders, but in families. We know we got to intervene in an appropriate way, of course, discerning the right approach at the right time in the right place. But often that's when any of us get into trouble when we are overworked or isolated or falling into addictive patterns or really lonely. One way to be co-responsible is to care for each other, to risk reaching out to someone in that time. The report also calls for more transparency in church structures. For instance, in finances. Or even some are proposing in the selection of bishops. And we're seeing this more and more with the publication of lists of accused bishops and priests. The Jesuits, by over the course of, um, since the summer, I guess, the last province of Jesuits released all the names of men credibly accused living in debt over the last 50 years in January. And, and dioceses have done that. I, I don't know about this diocese, but we, the diocese have, um, each in their own are deciding when to release names. That's transparent. That's responsible. It's complicated, right? Vetting the names and talking to the victims in advance again, but... That's a very important way forward. The truth will set us free, my friends. It's painful, but the truth will set us free. So collaboration, co-responsibility, transparency, accountability. There's got to be consequences for decisions. And so we are seeing accountability in a way we never have before, not just to the perpetrators of abuse, but we are seeing Bishops held accountable now for past actions, for an abuse of authority. But it should be apparent, accountability at the local level. It's a way that we exercise, I need checks on my power. I need to be held accountable as an administrator, as a priest. Very simply, people, after Sunday, if I, if I say something in a homily that's off, they'll tell me. You know, so I like, I mean, it doesn't feel good when it's said, but if, I, if I've said something stupid in the pulpit or hurtful, obviously not intentional, I want to hear that. So Andre, these people are going to tell you, right? <laughs> Sorry, you know. We all say, you all, we all make mistakes. Well, we, with truth and love, we say, hey, not good. Not, that's not the way to approach. You got to be accountable. There has to be structures of accountability. You know, in the, I was thinking in the reappointment of pastors, right? Is there, is there a vetting? Is there a consultation given? I don't, I don't know um, how, how prevalent that is. Get input. Um, and then the roundtable names, what has been talked about a lot, what Pope Francis has named as the primary ill facing the church, and that is clericalism. The cause of all the trouble... At its root is, I think, 
Most of it is clericalism. The tendency of clergy to use their positions for their own self-aggrandizement, their own comfort or protection. Clericalism fuels the belief that clergy are set apart or rather above ordinary lay people and thus deserve special treatment. Clericalism breeds a mentality of superiority, of, of isolation, of not being accountable. And let's be honest, some lay people can ferment this neuroses in the church or this, um, this sin. Why? By, by not claiming their voice, by sort of being overly deferential. Sometimes we do that because we don't want to be we don't want to claim our authority. So we say, oh, we'll give it to that person. Well, there's a consequence to that. I love this line from the report. My favorite line in this wonderful report, Heal the Body of Christ. If there are only miters and callers sitting around the table making decisions, then there are no mothers, fathers, or other lay people. That says it all, right? So in a sense, what we have to do is change our culture, but that takes time to claim your authority. You know, adolescence, that's basically what adolescence is about in young adulthood, is learning them to claim their authority. It takes time. We just, sometimes we have to reimagine our place in the church or reimagine our relationship with the institutional church. Um, one thing that's been raised in many quarters is looking at seminary education. How is it that priests are being trained are they only studying with other seminarians, other men? Are they only being taught by other men, other, by priests? That's probably not a very healthy way to grow both intellectually and uh, pastorally or spiritually. I think most people recognize that. I know we're, we're the better, we're not perfect, but we're the better because we have Jesuits and laymen and women and people from other religious orders all studying together, taught by men and women and Jesuits and not in our school. It's just healthy, because that's the church. There are only just a few ordained folks here tonight. So we got to get people used to that. And that could be scary for some people, right? But they got to, you know, get used to that. They were raised, these young men were raised by lay people. <laughs> also, we need to, uh, to theologically to actually do some work. And that's what we're focusing on at our school. You know, look at canon law and say what can change and what can't change. You know, talking about the church reclaiming the wisdom of the Second Vatican Council you know, maybe, maybe we haven't done a good job in, in teaching it. So maybe we need to teach it in a different way. Why is it that it hasn't really sunk in deeply 50 years later? Why is there such resistance in certain quarters to it? We have to really think through that. It takes some time. But we need good minds and good hearts doing that theological discourse. Here's one thing that we're sort of puzzling over. Did you realize that in your baptism and confirmation, you were ontologically changed? Okay, so ontologically changed, that's a medieval, that's a Thomas Aquinas. That's, a, a, that, that's the way he, again, a thousand years after the church was founded, described what was happening with baptism and confirmation. That is that with those sacraments, your character, your identity was fundamentally changed because you've been incorporated into the body of Christ. It's sort of a beautiful notion. 
that you're, that you're fundamentally changed at your root. Now, you're not going to always act out of it because that's where sin gets in the way or maybe just lack of awareness and you sort of grow into that priesthood that we talked about earlier. But you're fundamentally changed. Sort of a nice idea. Well, did you know the other sacraments where there is ontological change? Ordination. Curious that marriage is not a sacrament of ontological change. I think every married person can attest that if there's anything that has changed their life, it is both marriage and I would add into that parenthood, which comes from that marriage. Talk about ontologically changed. Talk about your character being redefined by those with whom you are in relationship. That happens to a priest. I get that. I am radically changed as a priest because I am, in a, I am in a relationship with the people of God with whom I am called to serve, and that relationship changes me. But why not marriage then? The problem with, the, the problem with and I, I actually ask that as a question. I, this is something I'm puzzling over theologically, and, it's gonna, and others are too. But because, but because you've been changed as baptizing confirmed people in two ways, and I in three, we're different. Ontologically, do you see the impact of that? So of course I can be treated differently. <laughs> so of course most priests will say, it has changed me, but it's changed me into a more fundamental way of serving, of giving back, and of right, being in relationship. But frankly, ontological change in priesthood has also been used as an excuse to clericalize. So see, these things are complicated. <laughs> the reform then is a mix of the practical, the canonical, the structural, and the spiritual. It's this whole mix here, and we can only do so much in I guess about a half hour or so that I've been speaking. But here's a little taste of, of what we're called to do and you'll pick and choose how you might something might have connected with you that you say I, I leave here tonight because I'm gonna maybe I just need to read Vatican II or maybe I need to pray more every day for the victims or maybe there's a victim of abuse in my life not necessarily by a cleric but I need to be more present to that I, there are lots of ways you can go with this pray with this how might I be called to heal the broken body of Christ I want to end um, Lent ends, ends with hope Easter. So I want to end with hope. Is that fire still going? Oh, it's gone. Okay. Well, yes, the body of Christ is broken. Yes, the pain is real. Yes, the path to authentic and lasting reform is tough and long. But remember that the body we speak of is Christ's. And the one who is broken is also the one who was raised. So we will choose life. We have to. If this was closer to us, if you look at the Pieta again, and you might want to pray over this Pieta or another image from our tradition. In Michelangelo's version, it's interesting, the suffering of Christ is not emphasized. There is just a note on his body of the crucifixion. Other images, he's clearly broken and, and, and bruised and beaten. But we see in, in his body only, only the, the, the slightest hints of death. So Michelangelo was making a, a theological statement. And if you look closely at Jesus' face, what you see in his face as you gaze upon it, and again, the face is turned towards his mother, it reflects surrender and almost peace. 
And if you look at Mary too, there's something placid about her. Her head is tilted towards her son as if they're connecting in the way this message of hope that awaits at Easter, as if they are both recognizing that in the broken body of Christ, there is imminently newness of life. With God's help, we will get through this moment of pain and moment of reform. And with God's help, and with the help and encouragement of one another, we will get there. Because as much as the body of Christ is broken, it is also alive in all of us here. We who are the body of Christ, we priests, prophets, and kings. And in that we place our hope. And of course, in the one who raised Thank you for listening to the St. Patrick Catholic Community Homily Podcast. We are Christian disciples in mission 